Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pros Almanac. In this episode, we're going to be digging in a little bit deeper on these ideas of Korean natural farming and jadam with a major proponent and educator of the practice. We sit down and talk with Marco, most notably known as Marco is Growing on Instagram, and the owner of Microbes by Marco, where you can get a lot of his products. We talk a lot about building soil, the actual application of these processes, and experimentation within natural farming. So hopefully you guys get a bit out of this, and it helps explain some of the stuff we've covered so far. Take a listen and let us know what you think. Marco, thanks so much for stopping by to chat with us. I've been following your work on Instagram for quite a while now, and while there are plenty of folks doing stuff with natural farming amendments, what I really like about your work in particular is that you're really open to dialogue and into applying new things and kind of really pushing the envelope. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this type of work? All right. Hey, I want to say thank you for having me. Well, a little bit about myself as a profession. I work in the uh, high-rise construction field. I've been doing that for about 20 years um, out of, you know, out of college. When I went to college, uh, my major was initially forestry and wildlife management. So I really had, and I always had a love of nature. I was an outdoor kind of guy fishing, you know, um, hunting with my dad and just in general playing in the woods type kid. So, um, you know, when it comes time for college, I decided, you know, uh, head towards that field, uh, forestry and wildlife management. I uh, went to Virginia Tech, uh, ended up switching my major partway through and got into where I'm at now, which is the uh, business and uh, construction management uh, field. So, um, but I always kept my love of nature, obviously, and I've always uh, kept a, a you know, parallel uh, hobby slash, you know, gardens uh, on the side for, you know, over the last, you know, 20 plus years as well. Um, throughout that time, I've grown many different methods and techniques, um, pretty much all types of plants um, that you can think of. And about, I'd say probably about 10 years ago, I really got into uh, like organics, you know, quote unquote, really just trying to get back to focusing on the soil. Because I, the ironic thing is I, you know, I learned about you know, microbes and soil biology somewhat in college. And when I started kind of my growing and, and gardening, um, I didn't necessarily incorporate that into it. You know, I kind of like everybody else, I went and started with just nutrients and, you know, fertilizers and things like that. And it just took a while for me to really, um, you know, realize that, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't the cleanest way. And I kind of just evolved from like organics. And then I started reading about, you know, one straw revolution and, and those kinds of things. And it's really just kind of changed my perspective on, on growing. Yeah. So it kind of stumbled upon, uh, you know, YouTube videos, you know, various techniques, the, the shows and Jadam and, not really exactly sure how it evolved to exactly where I'm at now, but it was just a combination of a lot of trial and error, uh, growing in methods that weren't uh, clean or sustainable and learning the right ways and then just embracing that knowledge and seeking more of that. And, and it just, you know, I, I'm always been a hands-on guy. So whenever I was reading these things, I decided to try them as well, you know, so 
as far as IMO collection, I thought that was fascinating, you know. So I think the really a, a big spot was first collecting that first IMO, and that kind of just took me down the whole um, natural farming path, you know. So it's been a kind of a long progression. Sure. So uh, you talk about the IMO, and I just like chuckle a little bit because I just happened to watch your uh, talk with Nofa Mass about how you don't um, just harvest the white IMOs. So for folks that aren't familiar with IMOs, they're indigenous microorganisms, and we use rice essentially to try to harvest them in the woods. And the goal traditionally is to harvest like these white puffy clouds. That's considered the, the good indigenous microorganisms. But you kind of have a different take on that. Yeah, I do. Um, I definitely love when I see a nice, um, you know, white fuzzy collection. I know it's full of saprophytes, you know, which are, you know, bacteria and fungi that break down organic matter. So we look for those long white strands. However, I also embrace the different other different colors that, that are into those collections. Um, sometimes they'll be reds, greens, yellows blue, purples, you know, so many different variation of colors, uh, blacks. A lot of time you're black is when things went a little long and got turned to spore. I don't prefer a, a very, you know, predominantly dark uh, collection. If I do have one like that, I will kind of pick out maybe pieces that I think look a little bit better. Um, but overall, I like to just look at it as I collected what was there. You know what I mean? If what was there was only fuzzy white quote-unquote nice looking uh, mycelium then that's fine sometimes it happens that way sometimes you may leave a collection out just a little bit long and even a half a day can start you know taking it from that fuzzy white or or taking it to different colors but um usually as long as I, it doesn't black out and go all the way to spore i'm i'm happy to, to accept it and i'll take it and label it and that's just more diversity, I feel like, in my gardens. You know, if you only seek out one type of one thing, you know, you, you don't, you kind of limit yourself from getting some of that diversity that you, you know, may be there. Yeah, and that's not really the natural process if you think about it, because in nature there is that diversity. So yeah. just trying to harvest one particular thing seems to be probably our traditional agricultural thinking kind of bleeding into this process a little bit. Oh, that's a great point. Very great point. Because, yeah, that that goes back to what, you know, white and fuzzy is clean, you know, dark is dirty, you know, that colors are not or gross, you know, that kind of thinking. So, yeah, that's that's a great point. To me, one of the really interesting things about this whole process is that a lot of what we're doing when we're doing these types of practices is still relatively new. There's been, I think, about 80 years of history of utilizing this technology. But in terms of research, there really hasn't been a, a ton of research comparatively to traditional agriculture. So I think there is still a lot of for us to learn, especially around these other types of uh, sport or collections to be made and how we can utilize them. I agree. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll just, if I get one that's really uh, colorful or different, I'll just kind of hand pick some of that out and make that its own collection. I did that with some, uh, I had some purple, which was really pretty cool. And I just took that in its own, its own separate collection. That's awesome. So <laughs> we figure out what it is, you know, we may never know exactly what it is, but if you know, it's part of a web that's, you know, ultimately beneficial. Yeah. So I'm interested now in this area. So have you done any actual uh, like side by side comparisons with any of these to say, all right, this is our traditional white IMO and then this tomato plant next to it is not 
and seen if there's any difference? No, I haven't. I always, I kind of wonder about things like that. You know, I don't really have the time for that. I wish I did. Maybe, you know, you know, I wish someone would do that. I put more trust in the fact of, you know, um, trust the process, you know, and so I kind of take it back. I put myself into a point of, you know, um, it, you know, and I probably should do some of that. But what I do is I hit my like when I water or when I use IMO or when I make IMO piles, I'll use a dozen or more different, you know, IMO tubes, you know. So I really just hit the hit it with the full gamut of diversity in there. And then I let it let the soil kind of sort itself out, you know. Those cultures and those colonies, they'll they'll be in there and they'll figure it out. You know, they'll they'll kind of balance themselves out. Yeah. They've been doing it for millions of years. They'll yeah, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it would be pretty awesome if somebody did take it take take that and could kind of say, well, this is, you know, kind of focuses more on a certain period of his plan or something like that. But no, I haven't been that deep in it. Yeah, because I, I gotta imagine that different fungi have different benefits during certain times of the year. Yes. So that it's definitely some, you know, again, like I was saying, there's so many areas to still explore in this subject matter, which is to me really like inspiring because when I was a kid and it was like, oh, you want to be a scientist or something like that. It's like, well, all the like low hanging fruit where the average person can like go learn, find something out that you don't have a, a you know PhD in. Uh, it seems like those days are gone. And now in a lot of this natural farming stuff, it's one of those rare opportunities where that's something you could actually do. Yeah. I think that's something you're doing too, because I know you use a lot of like fish tank water, which I've, I've never seen anyone else do. I'm sure there are other folks, but you're the first one I've seen. So could you talk a little bit about like what made you think about that and kind of what your uh, goals and benefits are from something like that? Well, using the aquarium water, I've been, uh, I built, well, I built my um, aquarium. I've been in, uh, it's kind of been a hobby of mine for about 15 years. I've been in a glass business. I'm the kind of guy when, so, so say like if I go to a, a shop or like a, big box store. I may not even be thinking of building a certain thing, but when I'm walking around and I see something, it may trigger me to say, hmm, I can use that for that and it might start a new project. So just to just saying that, I built an aquarium about 15 years ago and I got kind of serious into the hobby. Um, so this was winter time. I had an indoor grow going and this is around the time you know, when I was really kind of kicking off and getting, wanting to go more into organics. And I was, you know, I've cleaned my aquarium. This is 150 gallon tank. So when I'm vacuuming out the gravel, I get about five, probably about 10 gallons of this brown fish waste water. <laughs> so I just started using it in my garden and I really could notice a, a benefit to it. So I've been using that for years. And then as I got deeper into microbes, I started taking this aquarium water because I would get more than I could water into my plants. And I didn't just want to dump it out outdoors. So I would, I've been storing it in a tank. And then this tank, I also I said, well, you know, if I have these aquatic microorganisms growing, I might as well try to culture them. So what I started doing was I started um experimenting adding different uh, carbohydrate sources like uh, different sugars and, and starches like potato starch or rice starch and then i scope the what i get and what's in the tank and i noticed that indigenous local microorganisms that i find in my soil 
I was also finding in this aquarium water. So it told me there's a there's some kind of you know symbiotic relationship between those, you know, and then I read more on it, and there are definitely aquatic fungi. There are definitely a lot of these microbes share the same environment. So then I just, you know, I just kind of built on that. And then I kind of um as I got showing more on Instagram, when I discovered Instagram, people became more curious about what I was doing as well. And that's when I kind of got into the inputs a little bit, just selling off things which are surplus that I couldn't use and, and that kind of thing. So I don't sell a lot of inputs, but I do have a shop and I sell some. And the aquarium um, aquatic microorganism is really, is really a, a popular one. So that just came about of me using, not wanting to waste this aquarium water and then kind of uh, noticing the beneficial, you know, microbiology. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I have ducks, so I have like ponds scattered around and um, they get pretty dirty pretty quickly and I, uh, you'll scoop it out and it's just the silt. I use it in my fruit trees and nut trees and oh, yeah. they just, they take off. And I was like, I can't be the first person to have done this. Exactly. Like there's absolutely somebody who's figured this out. And then I happened to see what you were doing. I was like, oh, this is kind of like the outdoor version of that. Yeah. And you know, the awesome thing about natural farming is whenever I do these things, I just, it, I take my mind back to before we were, you know, a thousand years ago, whenever. And I say, I know I wasn't the first one because somewhere there was a guy that had a little fish pond or duck pond, such as yourself. And he did the same thing, you know, it was like, that was a time when you had to do these things, you know, when, yeah. and I love that, that people are, cause you could easily not even worry, you know, toss that trash, it, you know, but that's a benefit. And I love people are embracing those things as, you know, good, good for us and able to grow our food with them. Yeah. So with that in mind, I want to kind of circle back to this like very basic premise of KNF and Jadam. And like one of the things I find when I, I try to explain to people, it's not complicated, but it comes across as incredibly complicated. You have these tons of acronyms and it's about rethinking the way our, we relate with the landscape and our plants relate with the landscape. Mm -hmm. And I find that KNF and Jadam come at it from a little bit different angles in terms of you know inputs and things like that and the the logic of like what you're doing and you know kf i think of as more of like an accelerated version because you're using the, the brown sugar mm -hmm. so when you talk to folks about this and you start to decide what you're using when what kind of drives that decision of like i'm going to use leaf litter versus imos or you know anything like that you know that's a that, that's a great question i was actually thinking about that last night because I have a, fr a friend, uh, Joey Berger, who we, we did. He was on another show that, that we do. Uh, he's a great permaculture guy, uses a lot of Jadam. And so I asked a lot of uh, folks, you know, what do you want to ask him about, you know, what he does? And one of the big questions is a lot of people want to know is, okay, they want to schedule. Like, you know how when you grow, uh, I mean, you can edit this, but, you know, when you grow cannabis, all the companies are selling a schedule veg bloom transit yeah yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. so there's you know so many steps to layer so that's programmed people so much into thinking all right what's my schedule what's my schedule well when i grow i think more what stage are my plants in and then i want to match the stage of that plants with the inputs so here's an example so each time i water when my i feed and when I feed, I also do a microbe. So what I like to do is I'll do a JLF. So if the plants are in veg, 
I'll do a leafy JLF, such as a comfrey that's going to be higher in nitrogen and higher, you know, and, and those kinds of growth hormones for that stage of the plant. As the plant transitions, I start adding more fruit. You know, then I go add more of the KNF inputs, which are your sugary inputs, because, you know, a flower and plant is using a lot more carbs too. So now I start adding in fruit, J, uh, FPJs and those kinds of things. And I've taken a lot of notes and I think I'm going to compile kind of a, how I've done it, you know, because I notice a pattern, like I, I do the same kind of pattern, veg and the bloom and the transition. And so I'm going to put that in, in, you know, down on paper, but for me, it's just matching the plan. If the plan is, I know I'm about to switch out of edge into flower, then now I want to start adding some of the um, water soluble potassiums and, and w, you know, WCAPs and those kinds of things for the transition period, because those are for, you know, flowering. So it's, it's hard to say, you know, put it exactly how I do it, but if you match to me, the, stage of the plant has been working out wonderful, you know, veg and veg, bloom and bloom, and then using some of your other bone and your other um, char type inputs for transition periods. Yeah. And I think you brought up this idea that people really want a schedule. And I think that again, you know, much like with the, the white IMOs, I think it speaks to like wanting to see it as like a logical progression versus what nature naturally does, which is usually it dithers and it, it, you know, it, it evolves with itself versus like following a domino effect, so to speak. Right. If we fundamentally understand the utility of the inputs that we have, then we don't need a schedule. We're letting the, the plant inform us on what we're trying to do, yeah. which is I think you can read it and then you have to apply it to really fully understand it before you can then know when to use it appropriately. Yes. And now what I do that I think is a, is a is throwback from the old way of growing, I still have some of those old tools, EC meters, pH and things like that. What I do is when I make my feed, I still want to match my EC to my light and to how strong my plant is growing. So I use those all those same inputs, but I may dilute them to to get the dilution if it's too strong because people don't realize jls are very powerful and if you're not testing them if you're just kind of winging it and trying it you could burn your plants um so i use a meter just to kind of um you know check the strength of my feeds and my solutions just so i know i'm not going too strong hey there it's andy from the corporal's almanac thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast as you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. I'm kind of curious, do you use Dr. Duke's phytochemical database when you're trying to figure out what plants to use or not use, or do you just usually use the same plants so the inputs don't change significantly, like, like you were saying, comfrey? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I have not used that. I have used some that um, there's the one side I use the NPK of everything. There's certain plants I grow, like I grow comfrey and I grow stinging nettle. 
And those, you know, those are two that are kind of my staples for veg, you know, kind of thing. And then I'm also adding grass, you know, clippings and weed clippings and things like that. So I have several different JLFs. Um, some are like one is all comfrey, one is all nettle, one is a mix of everything, you know, and I have banana, I have pumpkin, you know, so I have all different, mostly using what I have and what I've grown here. I'm trying to make my place here. Um, where, and it mostly is where everything, all the inputs are made by plants that I grew here. And then all the plants are grown by the inputs I make. So kind of, a, it's going to be full circle. That's cool. Is that why I saw you had posted, you had some sugar cane you were growing? Yeah, I wanted to try that. I love eating it. First of all, I mean, it's delicious. Like growing up um, in the summers in South Georgia, we get it all the time. So I love it. And I think if it, if I can grow enough of it, it might be pretty cool to, you know, maybe, have a little juice source of, you know, carbs. And yeah, I mean, if you just cool, just to have one more thing that's, that I know where it came from. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the one thing that kills me with KNF is that it is so sugar, you know, input heavy, yeah. which is not, at least here, especially in New England, where you can't just grow it. Mm -hmm. So I've been really interested in either going more the Jadam route or trying to find alternatives to brown sugar, which it seems like everyone is trying to figure out, yeah. especially folks that don't live in places where it's readily accessible. So I've read a little bit of some folks trying to use like beet sugar yeah. and stuff like that. But even I'd, I'd prefer to use a perennial crop because it's so much less input heavy. Yeah. So like utilizing like a honey locust sugar, like in the pods okay. or something like that, that might be, I, I don't know enough about the sugar component yeah. and like what it needs in order to, successfully work but uh, like i said there's so many places for research to continue in this field it's it's just really exciting yeah it really is man we're on the, we're kind of like we're in a stage where i think if, if you use this stick to the principles there's a lot of room for different inputs because you can combine things you know like you said I, i've been i've gotten away from the sugar a lot i'm a lot more jadam i'm probably um probably 50 jadam you know easy um, and I feel like the, the K and F inputs with all the sugar, they're more like to me, like a icing on the cake, you know, in a way like they, they're kind of I feel like they're just getting, getting in there, giving you the small, tiny you know, micro benefits. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I could see that. You know, we've talked a little bit about this experimental farming and I want to try to localize that a little bit. So how has like your personal location impacted your decisions i know you're saying you're trying to grow everything on site what about you know the other inputs mineral inputs and things like that has that focus on localizing everything impacted you know bringing in things like i have a, a 50 pound bag on the other side of this wall of azomite and like that's obviously not local to where i live yeah. you know how are you trying to bring some of that stuff to try to localize the mineral amendments in a way that meets your interests on like making sure everything is local yeah yeah that's a tough one i i do have to bring in um my, like I, I do i like azomite um so one uh, one thing i do I, I do have to bring in azomite things like that um but what i like to do is we have a lot of local clay here uh so i like to incorporate that clay into it um clay is you know always good it's a you know got great cation exchange rate and all that so i like to mix clays into my soil and when i do i get local but i still do i buy like french green clay rasul clay sea clay like i'll still bring things in but yeah like on the mineral to you know level you have to you know i, I did when i built my soil horizon i did go to the river because i'm about 
200 feet from the river. I got river sand, river, river gravel, and river silt as part of my, um, my, my horizontal soil. So I do incorporate that, but it is tough to get to that down to that mineral level. Um, we got a lot of hunters here, so I get a lot of deer bones, which is cool. So that gives me a little, a little something there, but yeah, it's, it's a challenge with the minerals. Um, some people may have the benefit. They may live closer to, you know, rock quarries and things like that. They could probably get rock dust, you know, for little or nothing, you know, so it is, it is regional, you know, you have to kind of use what is available to you. Yeah. Now, when we're talking about like utilizing these amendments and things like that to bring this to like a bigger scale. I'm really interested to know if you think like what we're doing is something that can be applied on bigger scales. I know folks, especially the KNF has been applied on bigger scales, but again, that requires those massive sugar inputs and Jadam and like some of these other processes, like these experimental things might be a little bit more difficult to do on that scale or not even that, but on a bigger scale. So is this something you think could actually feed the world? To sound like cliche. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I can picture, if you can picture this, if you can picture a small town just starting there, local area, and here's a place where everyone brings all their, if you have food scraps or, or they pick it up and it all, food scraps go here, everything organic goes here. And the city or town invested in like huge tanks. I think they could do Jadam. I think you can do huge JLFs. And I think you could, you know, produce it to a point where it can, it can be beneficial. You know, maybe it take time to be a hundred percent, you know, to go that route. But if, if you could take all that um, nitrogen, the MPK and whatever's in that JLF, put that back into your fields, that's just kind of less that's going to the landfill and it will increase the, you know, your, your microbiology and your soils. I think it can be done if the money goes to it. You know, they spent plenty of money finding out the cheapest way to feed us and the, the way they can make the most money, put the most in their pocket. If they took a little bit of that and not even profited half, put half back into us and given us a, 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 the new way to grow. You know what I mean? It sure. would take the big ag to put it to kind of, I would think, or big money to get it to where everyone would be involved. I think. I don't know. Maybe I was yeah. rambling on, but uh <laughs> Yeah, it's tough because we know we have the resources and the infrastructure to try to put something in place, but whether or not that's something that, like, what has to happen for that to happen right. is really the the million dollar question. And you know, it takes time to scale those types of things up. And you know, the fact that we're talking about, oh, no one's really tried this, or nobody really knows that, speaks to how much time in terms of just research that needs to be done before we'd ever be able to scale up to something like that. Yeah, and I had a buddy, we were talking similarly about it scaling up, and we, we came to the conclusion, you know, not scientifically or anything, but if one quarter of the households did kind of what you do, what I do, just the basics of trying to compost and recycle things, I bet that would make a huge impact, you know, just even a quarter. Yeah, I've even thought about, like, if a landscaping company did, like, an all-natural landscaping fertilizer and it was just KNF, like you could charge a premium for it. And like your inputs are so cheap. Like it's just about having that, the scale and the infrastructure to actually do it. Yeah. I mean, that, that alone, the amount of resources that would be saved, not fertilizing grass with like regular fertilizer would be like immeasurable almost in terms of like increasing the quality of life for 
millions upon billions of species yeah. or uh, like individual species across like North America even. Agreed. It'll be a domino effect. That small, that small percent, I think, will com- you know, compound. Because what you're doing is you wouldn't be doing the old thing so that you'd be kind of twofold because you're not doing that. And you'd be increasing again because you are doing something that's beneficial. So Yeah, you're not even just doing something that's neutral. You're doing something that's positive right. and putting in positive inputs in versus just not doing a negative thing. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I try to have a lot of hope based on the fact that this stuff is once you put, spend some time, you don't need to have a degree in biology to understand how it works. Nope, you don't. And it speaks, I think, to a very like ancestral human part of who we are to understand the relationship of the plants and the soil and us. And, you know, as humans are historically speaking, our role has been to manage landscapes. Mm-hmm. And like this is just a different part of that. And now we have all this technology which can make us better at it as opposed to better damaging it because we're trying to simplify inputs, we can use that technology in a different direction. And it doesn't even have to be like a lot of technology. It can be what you're talking about, a, a pH meter. Right. You know, there, there are things we can do and try to utilize what's available to us today without saying, oh, we have to go back to living in like mud huts or something. Right. Or we can't do anything because we can't do everything. Yeah. Like just because you can't do the whole thing, you can still start that step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to ask about your indoor grow a little bit because I, I also grow indoors and it can be a challenge sometimes in terms of the fact that you're trying to create an ecosystem in such a small space and mm-hmm. it, trying to be natural about it when you're growing literally under an unnatural light in an enclosed space is like totally counterproductive to the concept of natural farming. Yeah, it is. So I'm interested to know, as somebody who's probably done it for longer than I have, how that space is different than growing in your backyard. Yeah, um, I mentioned a little bit earlier on the horizontal soils. Here's what I do in my thought process. If you are going to grow indoors and you're going to grow in a four by four space or whatever that space may be, I want to have a that size living soil bed. So I got a four by four tent. I got a four by four living soil. I got all as much soil as I can get because the more soil, the easier your setup's going to ba- take, you know, be to balance itself out. So what I do is yeah, I focus on that horizontal soil with the gravel sand filter bottom, the um, kind of the organic topsoil, the part that the plants grow in in the middle, and then in a, a smaller organic layer, which I use clay on on and, and a, a companion crop. So I use a lot of clay on my on my, on my organic layer, which is your O layer. The A layer is kind of your meat, where you, most the bulk of your soil is. I make that, um, you know, amended with, you know, different amendments, rock dust and that kind of thing. Because I what, what I want is I want a soil that has everything in it to feed the plant. I want everything there, but I also want enough microorganisms in it because they have to start the process of eating these things and and, and mineralizing and, and nutrient cycling all the stuff that I got in this big hunk of four by four bed. One thing I do is I build my soil before I start growing. I, I let it balance itself out. Usually I get a lot of off the initial build, I get a lot of different gnats and flies that may appear. So I start watering with BT. After about two to three weeks, I'm ready to plant in that soil but like i said the biggest thing for me is highly amended not highly just adequately amended 
And then highly amended with IMO. So in a four by four, I may have 10 gallons of different IMO. Uh, IMO oh, wow. four and IMO five. And a, and a 150 gallon setup. So that, it seems high, but it, you know, it's not. So what, what I do is, so now if you look in this indoor, my indoor living soil, it's pretty much just like outdoor. Like I have, you know, isopods, I have worms, I have springtails, I have mites. Each class of soil food web, I like to also have in my indoor soil because to me, that's how you're going to get the balance. Like if I'm missing a group, if I'm missing worms or something, I'm going to be missing a little bit of the the relationship of that. And that's not going to be beneficial. So I, I try to focus on just, I allow each member of the soil food web to, to just have its own part in my soil. And it seems to work out I mean, really nice. Yeah. So I'm curious, one of the things that I've been trying to figure out personally, and again, I, much like I was talking about sugar, I try to think about what I can use that's most local. And with, with IMO four and five, you have like these massive inputs that go into them. I was wondering if you've put any thought into that in terms of how to reduce the massive amounts of inputs to inoculate. Yeah. So, you know, I am four. Are you talking about just the liquid inputs I have to water in? Uh, no, 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 not the liquid, the, the physical inputs. Oh, like the grains. and the, Yeah, okay, the grains. I got you. Yeah. Um, things like that. So a buddy of mine, we just charred up a bunch of cannabis stalks he had from, from old grow. So my next IMO three I want to do is I want to, I'm going to run a bunch of these stalks through grinder and then see if I can use that as my grain type, you know, substitute as in, in the mix. You know what I mean? Sure. One less thing I have to buy. And then, um, so I want to try that. Um, but a lot of times, yeah, you have to either buy grain or, you know, try to be or grow grain, but that's kind of not easy. That's a lot of input for yeah. <laughs> one IMO. One thing for IMO five, I like, I do those because it, it requires like a manure or high nitrogen source and I don't have manure or, or animals. So I made, basically I made, uh, I took comfrey, put it in a barrel with water, like a JLF, got really funky. And then I took the solids out, all the comfrey solids and it's basically smelled like crap and i use that as my manure and it really worked out nice for imo5 that's awesome yeah that that's the stuff that i i get excited about when people can try new things and they say oh look yeah we can do it with less inputs like that that's the goal exactly that's the thing i like too i like it i, li I mean I, I i like good hard work but i also like it smarter than you know harder sometimes too you know so. yeah like there's nothing wrong with doing the work but like i said if we can try to reduce the inputs and make it less of a global process where it's like, we've got these sugars that are coming from South America and we've got these grains that are coming from the Midwest Yeah, to feed local organisms just seems kind of silly. Well, here's a good one for you then, because what I've been doing is in my teas, I've been taking the sugar out and I've been adding uh, brown rice flour as my starch. And that's been working out really nice. So that's actually been a good option over the sugar. Yeah, that's interesting. The last thing I really want to ask you about, and this is going in a totally different direction, but I think it's really important because of the overlap with natural farming and some of the like new age science that has some really problematic histories, things like natural selection and all these other things. So how does race and identity play into some of these groups? You know, there, like I said, there's a lot of overlap with sometimes very hard right wing blood and soil type of folks. Kenya, I think less so than permaculture, but I think it's still there. 
So I was just kind of interested if you had any thoughts or experiences or things that you just wanted to talk about. Yeah. I think that um, I think the history of farming, you know, there's been a lot of it's been a lot of unfair history. And I feel like part of big agriculture, what they did was by um, creating this system of farming was you basically just found a way to push the small guy out or the, the guy that, or the minority guy or whoever wasn't, the, you know, if you didn't have the money, um, they created these extension offices. They were the ones that come out. They show you how to put all these chemical fertilizers down. So really, a lot of big agriculture, uh, you know, it's got a black eye. You know, a lot of people that look like me, a lot of farmers that, you know, were of color, lost land over the years in fact they were big farmers you know really big into farming and by by these various you know ways that big agriculture came in they lost that you know by for whatever reason mostly because of um financial you know so i feel like natural farming can be freeing you know what i mean it can it can cut you're not tied to big agriculture you don't need the extension guy to come in and show you how to apply this 10 10 10 or whatever it may be, you can self-educate, you can follow nature. And I want to see people get back into farming, you know, and and keep and the way to do it is keep working your regular job, pick it up as a hobby. Now you have this hobby, which is low cost and can actually, you know, bring in some profits, you know, if you if you get serious about it. So um to me, this natural farming will it can be a revolution if it, if people, if it can catch on and, you know, if we can keep pushing the message, I think it, it will. Yeah. So for folks that are interested in hearing more from you, seeing what you're doing, where can they find you? Where could they buy your amendments? All that good stuff. All right. You can uh, follow me on uh, Instagram, Marco underscore is underscore growing. And then if you want to, um, I have another page called Virginia grown which shows uh, the other side of me, uh, shows uh, the cannabis side, which is legal now in Virginia. So um, I had to start another page uh, because Instagram doesn't want you selling inputs and talking about those kinds of things. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you can check me out there. And then my website is um, www.microbesbymarco.com. And I'm a lot of times I'm sold out of things. Um, I have small batches, so sometimes you can catch some things on there. Um, but I'd, I'd much rather show you how to make your own stuff, you know, so just reach out to me on IG and then I'll, uh, I'll get back to you on there. There's a lot of accounts out there and I know a lot of them when they get bigger, don't respond to people. And you've been, I've always, we've chatted a few times in the past before I asked you to come on. And that was a big reason why I wanted to, because I know you're open to having those conversations and you're not guarding the information like a lot of other folks right. do well i hope i was nice man because sometimes <laughs> sometimes by the end of the day when you answer the same question a lot it, you can you know, i might get a little short so no i i hear you i do the same thing too yeah marco this has been great i really appreciate it yes sir appreciate you having me man it's been wonderful <laughs>